here we are now with another episode of the Andrew Lake podcast. My name is Dosta. And today I'd like to talk about Eric Erickson. And he was a developmental psychologist who came up with this psychology, which is eight stages of human development. And when we talk about human development, there are many maps or psychologies or models or ladders. And they're all different in different ways. Some of them have more detail to them. Some of them put it into five levels. Some of them put human development into 10 levels or 12 levels. Some of them have tiers, first tier and second tier, like they do in spiral dynamics. Some of them are to do with needs and values, like they are in Abraham Maslow's theory of human motivation. Some of them are more concerned with early development, like in Piaget and his theory. Others are more concerned with the later developments. So this one I'd like us to add to our bag of tricks, and maybe actually also, if we have time, if we feel to, we can talk about Rudolf Steiner, who was yet another psychologist who we can add to this bag of tricks of dividing up human development into a certain amount of stages or sections through a psychological lens, through a psychological perspective. And a good way to frame this, I think, or a good way to understand this, particularly the Eric Erickson one, is as this, as thus. Each stage of life has its own problems. And each age you are, as in the actual literal age, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, and so on, so forth. And that's how he paints the picture. Now, of course, there are problems with that, and it is quite crude, and we can talk about that as well. But initially, just to get your foot in the door for this theory, we're working with the assumption that each stage of life has its own challenges. It has its own problems, and it's got its own dichotomies or two parts that are seemingly working against each other. And that's how Eric Erickson puts it. He says that each stage has these two things that somehow contradict each other And of course, I'm paraphrasing. Everything we're saying here is paraphrasing. There's no quotes. We're just taking a general... This is a a 101 version. But he says there are two things that are seemingly contradictory, but once they're resolved, then you get a virtue or you get a life lesson 
and then you can move on to the next stage. Now there is one thing I'd like to thread through all of this. And this is a big point. This is a big piece of wisdom which can actually be applied to all our developmental psychology maps. And this is something you need to keep in mind and remember whenever we talk about something that is stages or unfolding or something that follows after one another. So this idea of one thing being resolved and then you move on to the next level. There needs to be this one big thing that you keep in mind throughout all of them. And that's this. It's that every stage is always inherent and present at every other stage. So when we're talking about stages as in an order, one, two, three, four, five, and so on, we need to also remember that wherever you're at, all the other stages are available. Now that is a contradiction, that is a paradox that won't make sense unless you have a way of paradoxically thinking about two different perspectives or two different lenses. And you need to be able to go into both because with this insight, with saying that all stages are available at all other stages, you need to also understand that the opposite is true. And is that, that is that we do have stages. And that does contradict. Because when we delve into this thing of saying, well, it's available and it's ever-present, when you delve into the details of what I actually mean by that, then we get to the nuances and we get to the differences. So you might say, well, Dosta, does that mean that a 12-year-old can do the same as a 60-year-old because the psychological levels are inherent in them? And I'd say, well, no, it's not about doing. Doing is a, a word that involves, brings to mind things like action and actualization and achievement and external realities which are driven from within. So no, a 12-year-old can't do what a 60-year-old or an older person can do. And there are many different ways we can collapse that nuance because it's almost like saying, when we zoom really far out, it's like saying, well, everyone is exactly the same thing because everyone has everything else that everyone else does. So in that case, we are all the same, all of the time, in every way. And of course, well, no, that's not true. That's not very far. That's not going to get us very far in understanding our psychologies and our internal worlds. 
then you can say, well, does that mean every single person is different? And we need a psychology map, which is individual for each individual person. And we need something so complex for it to be as complex as a human being. And then, well, on that end of the scale, we say no as well. That's also incorrect. Because we do need generalities. We do need summaries. We do need profiles within stages. So that's a bit of a... that's a Take that as sort of a, a, a long-term wisdom. If that piece of information is not clear and how whatever examples I'm illustrating as we go along, if it doesn't fit with that, don't, don't get too mixed up in it because you do need a certain number of psychological maps and developmental maps understood in their sort of ABC sort of way before you can start to see all the similarities and before you can start to transcend them. So that's why we're adding this one to our list. So here we go. Eric Erickson, from birth to 12 months of age, approximately, a human being grapples with trust versus mistrust. A newborn baby has immediate needs and their urgent needs, their critical needs, their vital needs. If they're not met immediately, and sufficiently, then there are great crises for the baby. Things like food, things like warmth, things like tender loving care, being caressed by the mother, a quiet space, a safe space. All these things, and they're always ongoing. They're always changing. A baby has sleeping times and poop in their pants and then problems with this or are you hungry or you do need that or do you need this and so on and so forth. And we all have a different degree of how well those needs are met in our lives in our first 12 months. And Eric Erickson says, well, if they are met well, then this baby is going to grow up into someone who trusts the world. And if they are not met well, their needs are not met well, then they're going to grow up with a sense of mistrust in the world. And that, in and of itself, is a very broad observation. And it does say a lot about our trajectory from infancy, from being a baby. And there is quite a lot that rests upon our very early conditioning, our very early life circumstances. And you can see, well, look at this. This is just the first 12 months of age. And yet Eric Erickson has found something that we all still at all ages, can see as an issue. Or, if not an issue, I, I also have issues with the word issue. <laughs> I, I don't entirely agree with 
Well, I'm sort of in two minds about it because he sort of presents it like it's a problem that needs to be resolved as if there's an off and on switch. But you'll see as we go along, like in this first 12 months stage of trust versus mistrust, these are ongoing things. Do you have trust issues? Do you trust the world? Do you trust the people in your life? Do you trust yourself? And what exactly does trust mean? Does it mean you trust yourself to survive? You trust the world to keep you alive? Is it just a matter of survival? Or do you trust that you'll do the right thing? Is it a matter of morality? Of goodness? Do you trust that you'll be a good person when the time is needed? Or is it a matter of ambition? Is it a matter of fulfillment and thriving and progress? Do you trust that you'll do the right things and the right things will happen in the world for you to reach your full potential and for you to thrive? Do you trust the world that it will allow you to thrive? So trust versus mistrust begins at 12 months of age. And in this Eric Erickson model, he says that the virtue is hope. So a child learns to hope. The baby learns to hope that their next meal will come and their mother will caress them and their warm environment, their warm, safe bed will be there again tomorrow. And now we move on to the toddlers. This is ages one, one and a half to about three years. And the dichotomy here, or the paradox to be resolved here, is autonomy versus shame. So autonomy, well, that's quite a big word, isn't it? I don't mean in how many syllables it has, I mean in its philosophical implications. (laughs) Autonomy, going out and doing something under your own... Esteem, making your own choices. A child decides which toys to play with, which clothes to to wear, which way to go when walking down the street, or what to do, this to do, these sorts of things. And then that's versus the shame, which is the, the, the judgment the parent gives to the child for their choice, for their autonomy. And there's always this thing with the parent's conditioning, which is a reinforcement or a condemnation. And that's a dichotomy in the conditioning. And the condemnation is the shame and the doubt of bad boy, bad girl, why did you do this? 
That's the wrong thing to do. And of course, this is very powerful as toddlers because when a toddler is at the ages of one to three years and they're in their development, they're very sensitive to their parents' emotions, particularly for the mother. And this shame and this doubt has very a very big impact on a toddler because you remember that only a few short years ago that toddler was inside the mother their, their physical body was inside the mother so when the mother felt an emotion the child also the unborn child also felt that emotion there was an impression even in there And now this child has been born. They've come out and they've separated their body from the mother's body. And yet there's still a very close connection. And in many ways, they are still connected. They're still breastfeeding. They're still hugging a lot. They're still holding hands. They're still very close. So this thing of, why did you do that? You did the wrong thing, is a very big It has a very big effect on the toddler. And this autonomy versus shame, if it's resolved at this stage, according to this Eric Erickson model, it has the virtue of will. And basically, that's like an enthusiasm for a toddler. Because a toddler can... Be running around saying, oh, what about this? Or let's go do, let's play with this, let's do that. Or a toddler can be stuck in their doubt. And this is, this autonomy and shame is, it's actually thread through the next few stages as well. And the next, the next two stages really are deeper and more complex variations on this. Because, of course, the whole thing of the parents encouraging or judging, that continues. It doesn't stop after the ages of one to three. It continues. It continues into the next stage. So ages three to six... for a human's development has the has the dichotomy of initiative versus guilt so guilt is different to shame in its intensity and it's also different to doubt in that usually guilt is a retrospective of something you've done where doubt can come beforehand and initiative is different to autonomy In that initiative, you can get your own ideas. When you're doing autonomy, you're choosing which toy to play with out of a whole bunch of toys that have been left for you. But with initiative, you're playing with something that isn't even meant to be a toy. And your parents are looking at you saying, where on earth did my child get the idea to play with this in this way? And they're sort of scratching their head and thinking, 
damn, kids really are creative, aren't they? It's such amazing, such an amazing thing to have kids. I don't know where they think up these ideas. And so that's initiative. And of course, the parents don't always say, wow, what a creative child. Where do they get the idea for this? Sometimes they say, what did you do? You have ruined grandma's seat in the backyard by trying to turn it into a treehouse. That is a terrible thing to do, and there comes the guilt. And this is a nice dichotomy for parents to be aware of. Because this, these children are always doing things that are completely out of the box. It's, it really is extraordinary how different a child thinks to an adult. And they're in the exact same environment as their parents. They've got the exact same things to work with. And yet the parent always gets faced with this thing where they can scratch their heads and say, wow, or even, or even be glowing about it and say, wow, that's very creative, little Dosta. Little Dosta, how did you think this up? This is a wonderful idea. How fun. Or the parent can say, little Dosta, what have you done? No one would ever do that. How could you think of such a terrible thing? And when this moves up to the fourth stage, which is usually the elementary school stage of ages 6 to 12, well, let me just, let me just wrap up the third stage, which is initiative versus guilt. And the virtue there is purpose. And that's when children have this idea starting to grow. It's born at this stage of, why are we doing this? And this doesn't occur at the previous stages. The, the toddler's never asking, why are we playing with this toy? Why are we playing with this treehouse? Why are we making this treehouse out of this seat in the backyard at grandma's house? But the purpose gets ingrained in because the parents are always saying, why did you do this? And that factors into their judgment. Was it right for this child to do this thing or wrong, right or wrong? Is there going to be an encouragement or a guilt trip? Why? Why? And the child can sort of sit there with their open eyes and stunned and they think, oh dear, the grown-up is asking me why, and I've never thought why. And past experience has told me that if I get this wrong, I'm going to have a whole lot of negative guilt emotions. And if I get this right, I'm going to be encouraged and praised. Let me think why. What's the right answer? Why, why, why? And the virtue is purpose. And they have a good purpose. And then the children are running around saying, oh, we used grandma's seat in the backyard because we needed to make a, a treehouse. That's why. <laughs> and of course, there's still the complex of the emotions of the mother. Because the mother has her own conditionings. She has her own things of whether it's right or not to use a seat 
in the backyard to make a treehouse at grandma's. So when we get to the elementary stage, which is ages 6 to 12, we have industry versus inferiority. Industry basically means your industriousness, your ability to make things. So if you have a strong purpose, and these kids are really going around saying, we are, making a uh, we are building a treehouse for the purposes of spying on the neighbors because they work for a secret organization. We need to spy on them. And there's some elaborate story coming up, which a 6 to 12-year-old could imagine up, but a 3 to 6-year-old couldn't. And they're really getting all the other kids to work for them. So the, the eight-year-old is getting all the, the six-year-olds to work for them. Now go and get some nails and go and get some more wood and we need to build this sort of hammer up here. And that's industry. A 12-year-old is going to make a better treehouse than a six-year-old. It might even be that they're doing other projects. They're doing other things. Treehouse is just an example. But that's industry. How good the treehouse is, if they have a strong purpose from the previous stage, is up to the development of the child. And then we have industry. Well, this is industry on the one hand, how good the treehouse is, versus inferiority on the other. So doubt is a thing in our toddlers which is preemptive and guilt is a retrospective in relation to our judgment from our parents whereas inferiority is starting to relate to the identity and not only of the in in relation to the parents but also in relation to their peers it becomes more complex Toddler is only really dealing with their parents, whereas the 6 to 12-year-old is working with their friends, their classmates, everyone in the soccer club, everyone in chess club, everyone in pony club, brothers, sisters. The social world is more complex, and so they're always thinking now, am I, am I superior or inferior? And how the child resolves that well, it depends on the values and what's being encouraged by their communities. Wow, that's a really good treehouse you've built. Or what have you done? You've done something terrible. Or even, or even not the shame, it's, a, it's not a very good treehouse. Or their friend might say, oh, this isn't a very good treehouse. My... My dad and I made a much better treehouse on the holidays somewhere else. And those sort of comments. And you can have comments like that because kids are starting to compare their families at this stage. They're starting to wonder, is every family like mine? That's the, this is the age where that first comes in, where their friends are all working together And there's a judgment amongst all of them whether this is a good project or not. And whoever's in charge and whoever's got the industry or the leadership is, is the one facing the most 
risk with the inferiority. And the virtue is, between in industry and inferiority, competency. And if, these, if this is not resolved, then it ends up creating an inferiority complex. And there is a big difference between working on a project under the strings of, am I good enough? Am I a good enough person? Am I being reassured by everyone? Am I getting accolades and praise from everyone, from peers, from co-workers and so on and the like? Or even public opinion? And that side of working on a project, as opposed to working on a project and being absolutely sure and clear of your competency. When you know you're competent, and you know you can get the job done, accolades, awards, and judgments and put-downs, none of that matters. You're there to get the job done, and you do the job. And if you're aware of this complex, and you're not competent, you can actually say, okay, well, let me work out what I need to become competent and really go into it intelligently and identify the difference between learning the skills, developing the skills, becoming competent, and following the public opinion. Following the thing of how do I get praise for what I'm doing. And you can see that a lot of people are stuck at this age. They're stuck at this stage. And they still have an inferiority complex. And the people that worry the most about public opinion or work in jobs that rest most on public opinion have the biggest inferiority complexes. And there are jobs which are solely based entirely on public opinion. And that sort of job is drawn to by a certain psychological composition within a person. And then we come to adolescence. This is stage five, and this is ages 12 to 18. And this is identity versus role confusion. So when we're talking about industry and inferiority, that's sort of a right and wrong binary view of the roles we have. It's either good job, bad job. But then when we get into role confusion... Then you're entering a world where there are different roles and there's different parts and there's different components to it. This is when the child gets their first job or they start to take on certain roles which are different to just being a member of the soccer team. They start to be a soccer coach, this sort of thing. Or they join a band where they have to work together. 
And then there is the identity of who am I? How do I find myself? Do I do I act this way in this situation? And you can see enough at this stage that there are multiple ways to act and there are different choices because different people act in different ways. You've learned at least that much. But you haven't really found out why. And it's not not exactly a matter of everything that comes along. You say, oh, now how should I act in this why, let me choose from a list A, B, C, or D. No, you also find that you're acting in certain ways and then retrospectively you're thinking, why, why did I act that way? What did I do that for? And maybe even in the moment, I don't know why I'm acting this way. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to say in this situation. I'm really just following my, my feelings. Words are just sort of coming out of my mouth. Where are these words coming from? And this, this is the identity crisis. This is the role confusion. Where are these words coming from? Why am I saying this? Who am I? And it's really just a matter of ego development. This is what they call ego development in a lot of other, in many psychological maps. And the virtue, if this identity versus role confusion is resolved, is faithful to faithfulness. So a person has faith in, faith in themselves and faith in their own choices. If they have a strong identity and they can resolve their role confusion, if they can say, no, this is my role. So, so imagine this, this is the person in the job and they are clear about their role and they're resolved about it. They're telling themselves, no, this is what I have to do, A, B, C or D, and it fits in with everything else. And it's the sort of thing that I would do. I am the right person for the job. And that's the identity connection. And really, is that that's quite a complex stage. That's a very big stage. What sort of job do you want? Well, I just got this job just because it was the one that I got. That's another entrance. That's another entrance into the identity crisis. Why am I working this job? It could have been any other job. Why me? So the the adolescence stage is very turbulent because you've also got your all your hormones and your emotions opening up, your whole world of sexual energy and the, the, the complexes of emotions are right off the scales and the intensity and the whole thing of, the whole thing at the previous stages, which was like, oh, is my family different to other families? What do other families do? That's like now off the scales where you're thinking, well, I'm living my life like this, but there are also 7 billion other people. And why is it that life is the way it is? It becomes almost existential at this stage. I know for me at my stage, at my age, when I was 12 to 18, it was existential. So it's a very turbulent time. It's a very chaotic time, very unsettling time. 
And the parents can't help. That's another part of it. Because you're starting to realize that your parents don't know any more than you do. And yet they're still and yet they still go on with their conditioning. They still try they're still trying to con- confirm or reassert you or encourage you or put you down or give you a punishment. They're still trying to do that. When it's really that's been outgrown. You've outgrown you've outgrown the whole thing of like punishment and encouragement. Basically when you're basically you've it never works. It doesn't it never really fit you. There was never a stage for that to be appropriate and yet your your parents are still on it. When you're 17 and you're 18 and that's when you turn around and you say I'm not 8 years old anymore. I'm 18. I can think for myself. That's a classic family. <laughs> that's a classic family family argument, isn't it? It's the classic moment between the child and the parent. You know you've reached it. You know you've reached a point when when you say that. That's a that's a milestone in your psychological development. And when you realize it, of course, is different to when you say it to your parents. <laughs> and of course, they might never realize it. Some people, some people have parents who still think that. To them, they are the oh the little child. Oh, you'll always be the little child to me, right through their whole life. So adolescence is a pretty pretty turbulent time. And then we come to, and and faithfulness. Well, let me just say a bit more about the virtue of adolescence, which is faithfulness, and that's just understanding the roles and understanding your identity. So early adulthood, which is 20 through to the early 40s, is intimacy versus isolation. And so this is basically who's your girlfriend or your boyfriend. And you realize that this is, this dichotomy is there whether you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or not. Because if you have this significant other, if you're in a relationship and you're thinking, oh, are they the right one for me? If only they were just a little bit better. Or can I do better? Oh, maybe it's not right for me to do this. Oh, we we do all these wonderful things together, but then they have all this this dark side. They have this terrible side. Oh, they're such a high maintenance partner. Oh, they're such a problem. Oh, I really like all these things about them, but I really don't like these other things about them. And if only they were just a little bit better, they would be perfect. Oh, and is it gonna last? And I really should leave them, and I really should just work on my business. And I should work on my creative projects. And I should work on myself. I should do my own inner explorations and do meditation and learn psychology, learn philosophy, learn awareness techniques. I should go on my spiritual journey. And my partner's just holding me back from all that. I really should be off with them. Oh, but I just love to cuddle with them. I just love to be intimate with them. I just want someone to hold. I just want someone to talk to. I want someone to admire. 
And if you're not in a relationship, well, then all of that still applies. You're thinking, no, I shouldn't be going out to, to chase these people. I should just let it happen naturally. Oh, I shouldn't act desperate. I should just work on myself and be strong in myself. I should really just take this time to focus on my creative projects and do my work and build things. I don't have time for a I don't have time for a relationship. I don't have time for that. Have you said that before? I know I have. So intimacy versus isolation is a dichotomy that exists whether you're in a relationship or not. And that's the, well, that's the brilliancy of this model. That's the brilliancy of psychological maps such as this because it's pointing it out to you. And if in, you're in your mid-twenties to early forties, you're walking around and the thing that occupies your day, your inner world the most, is your intimate relationship. And oftentimes, it's not very satisfying if you're in a relationship and you're thinking, why am I doing this? Oh, they're such a pain. I can't believe they would do this to me. Intimate relationships bring so much hurt. And so often we say, why don't I leave this person? Why am I so afraid to be alone? Why, why can't they just change? Oh, if they could just change, if they could just stop with all this negative stuff. I'm sure they will change. I'm sure they'll learn. They will change. I'll stay. Things will get better. Things will get better. Because I don't really, I really don't want to be alone. I'm really afraid of leaving them. And what if I don't find someone else? It was such a, it was such a rare chance that we met. It was such a rare chance that we came together. And these things are just swirling around, swirling around. And of course, this is something personal for me because I'm at this stage. I'm between mid-twenties mid to early forties. This is the age I'm at. I really should be careful too much what I should say. But I can relate to all this. I can relate to that back and forth of oh, being alone or being in a relationship. How am I going to find the one? If only I could find that one person, then I could stay with them for the rest of my life. And that issue would be resolved then this whole thing of intimacy versus isolation would be settled now that's not getting out of the trick that's not getting out of the trap that's not a solution because there's still all the other factors there's still the dynamic of intimacy and desire and self-knowledge and the strings of your past conditionings and your family conditionings all coming back all keep coming up all, 
All your psychological shadows keep coming up. All your different voices keep coming out. All your different value spheres keep clashing with this person or colliding or even merging. So if you're in a deep relationship, these things come out into the open. If you're in a shallow relationship, it's very easy to... Well, I guess that's why people have shallow relationships. It's because it's so easy just to accept someone and have a standard resolution, let's say. So when we we talk about intimacy versus isolation, there's a depth in each of those. And you can say, well, I'm not isolated because I've got a significant other. I have intimacy. But the question is, how intimate? How deep is that intimacy? And that's directly proportionate to your isolation, your sense of aloneness. And it's perfectly possible to be in a relationship and to have a sort of ABC intimacy. And yet you still feel isolated. You still feel, no, this person doesn't quite get me. They're not quite getting it. This person, ah, they, they just don't get it. And I, and I give up explaining. I'm not going to try and explain it. They, they just wouldn't understand. I'll just, I'll just stick around because it's easy. So that's a matter of depth. And it's still this dichotomy of intimacy and isolation. And if this is resolved... According to this model, the virtue is love. You have this sense of sharing with others. You have a strong self-concept. You have a vulnerability in your intimacy. You have an honesty of what you are and how you feel and what you think, which really shares the real you. And the virtue is love. And just like intimacy and isolation, the virtue love has a depth to it. How deep is your love? I hear some pop singer calling out to me. And it's a perfectly valid question. So the next stage is the early 40s, and it extends into the mid-60s. And this is care versus stagnation. Caring for others. Caring for other people. So if you have children, you start to care for the children. Caring for other family members. Caring for friends. And even it can can extend caring to... Larger things, caring for the environment, caring for the planet. And the other side of this is stagnation. This is, that, this is the deep sort of apathy or boredom that comes in old age. Old people are so boring, aren't they? Old people are so bland. Old people are always telling the same old stories. They're doing the same old things. It always feels the same to be with these old people. That's stagnation. 
And you see this come up in many ways. And of course, I'm speaking crudely here when I say that old people are boring. But it's just the stagnation and and it's very hard to... It's one thing... We, we talk about these psychological maps as things to help us understand ourselves. But then we can also flip it to, well, how do we understand other people? And of course, you notice that I did that as soon as we reached the stage which was just beyond me, beyond my age. So care, if we say, does this person care for others? Well, that's a judgment. You should be careful with using that. Have care when using that judgment. If I'm not using that word too many times. But then you can also use it as a way in to understanding another person. And stagnation or a sort of boredom with life is sometimes very easy to see. It's not always easy to describe as a thing to look out for. It's something you really have to be sensitive towards in a feeling sort of manner. Like, how does this person feel about their their old age? And it can be quite simply, does this person care? Like, that is a saying, do you care? Do you even care? That doesn't necessarily mean care in the sense of, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you, I'm going to give you financial support, or I'll drive you somewhere, or I'll give you resources, or I'll take care of you, you, you personally when you're sick, or you're in crisis, or you need something. There's that sort of care. But then there's also the more general sort of care is like, is it meaningful to you? Do you even care? Do you even care about what we're talking about right here? Like, do you, do you care about this? That sort of way. Do you care about your relationship with your children? Do you care about your relationships? Do you care about this or that? What, what do you care about? Do you have any sense of care? Do you have any sense of strongness in your values? And the opposite of that is, well, I don't care. Eh, sort of indifference. And that indifference in this model is called stagnation. So the virtue here, as I understand it, is care. And it's coming across as a strong sense of values and resources and an ability to implement them and influence positively the people around you. So you become the mentor, you become the carer, you become the father, the mother, you become the teacher. And you can do that role in a productive way. And you can ask this of your teachers. Do, do these teachers care about their students? Do the teachers care about the subjects that they're teaching? Do they care about the things they're talking about? Or is there a stagnation there? Is there a sort of apathy there like, oh, another year of students? Oh, I got to teach this textbook again. I've taught it so many times. And usually you can tell if you look at it that way. 
And of course, you see, again, I've slipped into the thing of using this model to understand others. And I imagine you to be using this model, at least in this stage of the, four, the mid-40s to 60s. There's a good chance you're not at that age. You're still at these summer earlier ages. So from the mid-60s to the end of life, we have reflection. And the looking back on life and really just taking an assessment of all that's happened and all that's been done. And the two, the, the dichotomy or the two things to be resolved in this stage of life, according to this model of developmental psychology, is integrity versus despair. So despair is a much deeper sort of emotion to stagnation or isolation or even role confusion or inferiority or guilt or doubt. Sort of like the stakes are higher here. And also integrity does seem more virtuous or somehow deeper than, in a way, care and intimacy and identity, industry, initiative and autonomy. Or at least the way that we're, the way that we're looking at this stage by stage, it looks like that things do get deeper as you go through the stages. So if you have integrity, you look at what life could have been and you say, yes, I'm glad it turned out the way it could have been. Yes, I did what I should have done, what I could have done. If you have integrity, you have a sense of knowing that you've learnt the lessons and you've integrated. Integrity, well, it's funny how integrity and integration are so similar in the way they sound. And I don't know anything about the linguistics or the phonetics or the the, hist- the etymology of those words. I don't know any of that. I just find it curious. To have, let's say this, let's create a, a cheesy catchphrase out of it. Let's say, to have integrity, you need to integrate. That sounds like it would apply. That sounds like it makes sense. Particularly, as this word integrity is coming up to the latest stage of development from the mid-60s to the end of life. So if you've integrated all these things, all these virtues such as care and love and faithfulness and competency and purpose and will and hope, and you've got all these things and you've worked them all out, you've resolved all these dichotomies, then you have integrity. And if you don't, well, now it's too late because you're in your late, you're in your mid-60s to the end of life and you can't really do too much to change how you feel about these things. So you get put into a despair. You get put into a de- in depression and there is a, there is a sense of mortality that comes in old age. And some people do have a despair about them in their old age. Oh, things could have been different. They do have regrets. That's the harsh truth of life. 
is that people do reach this stage unfulfilled. And the virtue, if you resolve this integrity versus despair, is wisdom. And wisdom can mean a lot of things. Wisdom is a word that, in a way, it has to be given its own definition every time we use it because it's been used in so many different contexts. But here in this context, well, wisdom means the understanding of your integrity and your despair. And you see also that even at this stage, just like the intimacy versus the isolation occurs, you're you're still facing both. So even if you've lived a good life, you're still facing despair. You still have to contend with that because you're contending with your own mortality. You're contending with the time that is lost. You're contending with all the things that you can't fix all the things that you can't redo. So for me, because we're looking forward to this and I haven't experienced and lived this myself, I'm sort of speaking it as a one or two or one or the other. Either you have integrity or you have despair. Whereas really it is more like, I I imagine, and I imagine all of these are, a matter of both of them at every stage. And that really that's really a nice segue into a few broader comments we can make about this model, which is it doesn't actually offer you the solution to these. It doesn't actually say, well, you need one or the other. It's actually just that you have both these things to contend with and you need to find solutions for both. Well, well, say for the negative side, it's almost like negative positive. But even even that in, in and of itself, like can you say, like you can't really say that isolation is inherently negative. Can you? And you can't even say that stagnation is inherently necessarily negative. Maybe stagnation is what you need in your 40s. Stagnation might be a positive thing depending on the kind of life you've led from your 40s to your 60s. You might need to just slow down, stop working so much, talk slower, walk slower, enjoy your food. Maybe stagnation is a positive thing. So you have these dichotomies and you have multiple components to them on both sides. And there are no answers. (laughs) But at least now you can understand what you're working with. By By understanding this model... 
You can know, oh yes, that's why I'm walking around thinking these things all day. Oh yes, that's why what I wanted as a child was different to what I want now. And then you can take the step, this is the step, this is one of the steps that we do with all of our psychological models, developmental psychology models, is we say, what happens if I jump ahead? What happens if I skip a few stages? And that means, what if I start to care for others before I'm in my 40s? And that doesn't seem too outrageous. What happens if I start to have integrity before I turn to my 60s? What if I start to confront and understand my despair before my 60s? What happens if I identify my own stagnation before I'm 40s, in my 40s? Because isolation, in all of these, like we said at the start, all of these can occur at any stage. So isolation and intimacy, well, that comes up even at the first stage from the child, from birth to 12 months years old. And of course, there is a there is a limit to like there's a there's a point where talking about psychological models like this and being aware of this is you you can't teach this to the toddler. <laughs> it's really adolescence onwards that can use this. And of course, I wish I had been taught this in my adolescence. I wish someone had have explained this to me. I didn't have I didn't have any developmental psychology understanding for a very large portion of my life. So if you're in your if you're like 18 years old and you're listening to this, wow, now you know what's coming. You know you're working with role confusion and identity. And what's coming is your intimacy versus isolation. And you can go into it with an awareness. And with the awareness that both sides are going to happen. And it's not a matter of one or the other. So you can play this this whole thing of, oh, I need one or the other. It doesn't work. It's just a duality. You really just need to understand both sides of it. And the complexes of both sides. And the issues of both sides. And the resolutions of both sides. Because there are joys in isolation. And there are joys in intimacy. And there are also problems with intimacy. As well as there is problems with isolation. So you can turn this thing into... Well, all of these words at different points are going to mean something, but allow me to go into each of them. All of these characteristics, all of these qualities. I should say, I should say they're character. Well, well, what are they? Are they, I mean, they're words. Yes, that's one thing they are, but what do the words represent? They represent a, 
uh, it's not exactly a set of values. It's more a, and it's not exactly also a motivation. Like you can say this is what's motivating you or my guilt is motivating you or my inferiority complex is motivating me or my desire not to be alone is motivating me. So you, you can put the motivation thread through it. But really, it's more like it's just the quality of your inner world, the quality of your perspective and how that's shaping up and how that is at a point in time. Because that, that's a flexible, flowing thing. It's like the river as you go through these ages, as you go through life. And there is another side to this, which is... On the one hand, it's just a whole bunch of things which offer as ways to understand how your perspective is changing. And you can just use it to navigate around. But then on the other hand, there is actually a success to these things. So just like we say that both sides are always there and they don't have a black and white answer to them. Well, paradoxically, you can resolve these things. You can have an understanding and a resolution experientially of these things. And it's possible to do that regardless of your age. You can actually transcend this in such a way that you don't follow these stages throughout this age, throughout these age groups. Just like the politician might still be dealing with an inferiority complex from when he was 12 years old up until his 40s. Well, the opposite is true, which is that maybe a 12-year-old does deal with it. And then the 17-year-old does deal with their role confusion. And then the early 20s, they deal with their intimacy. And then they're well into understanding care and stagnation before they've even reached their 30s. And then they deal with their understanding of care and stagnation before they even turn 30. And then they're at the stage which is usually meant for 60s when they're only 30. And there's a much likely, there's much higher likeliness of that happening if they actually go into this model, whoever it is, and actually accepts, yes, these are my issues, and yes, I need to fix them. And I need a strong, solid resolution where a strong resolution is required. Now, for some of these things, strongness and resolution is not exactly, it's, it's deceptive as that as an answer because that's a very ego. In, in some of these stages, a strong ego and a strong resolution is what is needed, whereas something like care, well, that doesn't need a strongness. It doesn't need a resolution. It doesn't need a resolve. And that, well, well, that's the difference between a resolve and a resolution. If you have a resolve, 
then it's resolved for you. And a resolution is the collapsing of a duality or the transcending of a paradox. And that looks very different. All, both those things look very different at different stages. So I think that's enough to chew on. And we really only begin, like all, like all psychological developmental maps, there's still a that there's still it's still missing the thing which is the beyond this which is the the people that go beyond and this would be like the equivalent of this eric erickson map it's the equivalent of first tier in spiral dynamics so in spiral dynamics you have eight stages and the first six are first tier and the next two are second tier so this is like eric erickson but he only goes up to the first six stages of spiral dynamics. And if you look at Abraham Maslow, he's got his pyramid, the hierarchy of human needs. You know that pyramid? I'm going to assume that you do because it's quite popular. It's quite famous. And this is the same as that. But what is less known is actually there's a second pyramid in Abraham Maslow's model, which is upside down. And it starts to go out. Once you reach the top, the peak of the first pyramid, you then start to go out on the second pyramid, which is upside down. So this Eric Erickson map is missing the second pyramid. As if it was, that's, that's if it was the same as an Abraham Maslow model. And it's missing second tier if it was a spiral dynamics model. So that's... That's a hint of the beyond. That's a hint of what it means to actually go through all these stages and have them resolved and know how to navigate them freely and to be aware of them experientially and psychologically. It's, it, I mean, it, it's such a, such a big thing. Like to, it, it, There's so much to chew on. I don't want to put too much on it by saying too much about the beyond. We'll have to cover that in another episode. So just... Just work with what you've got. Work with what this has triggered. Work with what awareness this is bringing you. And just keep going because the only way up is through. The only way to that second pyramid is through the first pyramid. So just don't worry too much about, oh, reaching the beyond or I want to get to higher stages because you have to go through all these. You have to be aware of all these. Now, we did say at the start also that we talk a little bit about Rudolf Steiner and his model is instead of eight stages of psycho psychological development like Eric Erickson, he's got 10 stages and he divides it by seven years each stage. So you have a different amount of years in each stage to the Eric Erickson model. So from zero, I'll, I'll go through them quickly, but we'll have to have another conversation about them. So from ages zero to seven, you go from oneness with the mother to growing autonomy. 
ages 7 to 14, you have a fight for and a commitment to life. Ages 14 to 21, you have wild emotions, raging hormones and sexuality. Ages 21 to 28, you have a shift from play towards responsibility. Ages 28 to 35 is your physical peak of the physical body and the birth of soul. Ages 35 to 42, you have your crisis and your questioning. Ages 42 to 49, you have soul searching. Ages 49 to 56, you have an ever-growing vision and understanding of life. Ages 56 to 63, you have a crossroads between mastery or reevaluation. Ages 63 to 70, you have your blooming and your spreading of wealth. And from 70 and beyond, you have self-reflection. So there's a lot of crossovers between that and the Eric Erickson model. And you can see how the, the edges start to blur when we put two developmental models next to each other. And also you can see, well, there's still things in these higher stages that you can do now, like reflection, self-reflection. What if I do what a 70-year-old does and I just sit and reflect on my life? What if I have a crisis and questioning now, but I'm not 35 to 42? And so on. And that's one approach to what you can do with this information, with these models. And that's what I did. I I was thinking, (laughs) when I came across these things, I was just thinking, now, how do I get to the higher stages? I'll just do what what they do. And of course, the problem with that is, well, you don't have certain resources available to you. So, and just because you go to focus on another stage doesn't mean you've resolved the stage that you're at. <laughs> but really it's all just it's all just stuff to play with. Like I don't want to what you do with this. Well, that's the question. What do you do once you learn developmental psychology? <laughs> you somehow your whole life changes but still you you're stuck where you are. <laughs> Maybe that's another paradox or another dichotomy that needs to be understood and transcended. (laughs) So we won't go into Rudolf Steiner too much. Maybe we will another day. Maybe we won't. I mean, he has also different planets for each stage. So there's the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Jupiter, Saturn, and so on. So that's very different. 
So there's a lot of crossovers, but there are a lot of differences as well. So today we can at least add Eric Erickson to our kit of tricks. And to finish, you know what I'm going to ask. Have you been doing the meditations at the end of these episodes? If you have, you're starting to starting to build up. Some people listen to multiple episodes in a row. And if you're doing that, it's very important that you do the meditation at the end to just digest and just have a break from the sound of my voice. Let your mind and your body and your feelings do whatever it needs to do while some silence happens. So if you've been doing them, well, they're starting to build up and you can easily step into, if you listen to a lot of episodes and you do the meditation at the end, you'll easily step into a meditation habit. But if you're just skipping over it, well, then you're not taking steps in the right direction. You're not really following along. It's one thing to listen. It's another thing to follow along. So if it's comfortable for you to do so, and you're following along. Sit down. Stop what you're doing. Sit down somewhere. And close your eyes. Take a few breaths to relax. And just become quiet. And just watch how you feel. How would you describe how you feel in your body, inside? And how would you describe what you're thinking? And just take a few minutes to sit quietly. And that's all I have to say for now.